Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. In this episode 10, we're going to have some updates, addendums, and corrections, and then we're going to jump right into one of the hottest topics in van life, security. For Tech Talk, we're going to discuss multi-tools, and I've got a tale from the road about a time when I was really stupid, but sad to say, those stupid times are often where you get the best stories. And I will talk about a supernatural place you can visit. Sorta. I've got three things to talk about with updates. Uh, first, most important, uh, I have a friend named Patrick who is a firefighter in Montreal, Quebec. So, he says... About the smoke detectors, if one will camp in cold weather, consider using a 10-year battery detector. They have a sealed, non-removable lithium battery. Lithium batteries retain 97% of their capacity down to 5 degrees Fahrenheit versus 20 to 30% for alkalines. Also, you'll never have to worry about replacing batteries as a smoke detector must be changed after 10 years. So Patrick, thank you for that. That's excellent advice. I hadn't actually considered batteries and cold weather. That makes perfect sense. So folks, spend a little bit more money, get the 10-year smoke detectors with the lithium batteries, and be done. So good advice. I also received word from Randy, the riverboat captain. And yes, he actually is a riverboat captain, and he actually is Randy, from what I've heard. Uh, he has told me that I left out one of the most important coffee solutions, so I'm here to share it with you. And that is the Folgers Singles solution for coffee. Yeah, I said Folgers, which automatically makes me not like it, but I've actually tried these things. Um, they look like tea bags, but they're filled with coffee. It's coffee grounds. And you can, you can kind of get what's going on here is that the tea bag is actually just acting as like a filter. So you boil your water, you pour it in the cup, and you add your coffee tea bag and let it sit for whatever it says in the package, a little less, a little longer, depending on how you like your coffee. Toss that out, and hey, you've got a nice cup of Folgers, which to me is about the lowest form of coffee possible. But again, coffee is a very personal thing. Randy loves these things, and heck, he's a riverboat captain. He should know coffee. So don't be afraid to give them a try. They're very inexpensive. You can get them at grocery stores. Uh, they're not hard to find. They're just in the coffee aisle. So thank you for that, Randy. And last but not least, I have to thank Patricia from Florida who contacted me to say that there was a problem with the volume in the podcast. And yes, she's right. The volume between the different episodes changes dramatically, and also even in the same episode. So I apologize for that. I'm using software called Hindenburg, which is this fancy modern podcasting software that is supposed to take care of all of your levels for you. And what I'm finding is that it actually doesn't. And unlike Audacity that I've used in the past, I don't have a whole lot of control over it. There aren't any knobs I can turn to make things louder. It's... um. It's a little hard to explain, but at any rate, I am going to figure out if number one, I am screwing up and doing something wrong, or number two, this software just isn't good for what I'm using it for. Either way, I will solve this problem. Thank you, Patricia, for pointing out that I needed to, and I apologize to anybody who was annoyed with me. I was annoyed with me too. Anybody has any issues, we're at builttogo.com. You can get a hold of me there. And hey, thanks for listening. I mean, really, really. Thank you. It means a lot to me that people would actually spend time listening to me jabber. Now, on with the jabbering. One of the most talked about things among new van lifers is security. 
How do I stay safe in my van? And again, I will go back to my old maxim. How do you stay safe in your house? And then suddenly when I ask that question, people are like, well, what do you mean? And it's because this is mostly a psychology problem, in my opinion. I don't think you're inherently less safe in a van than you are in a house. Taking aside driving it, driving is inherently unsafe. That is a given. But if you are parked somewhere out of the way in your van at night, are you less safe than you would be in your house? I'm going to say not, because if you're in your van, you have the option of driving away, which you don't have in your house. Also consider that someone can break into your house without you knowing it. If you're asleep in the bedroom, someone can break in through the basement or the attic or the kitchen or whatever and maybe prowl around and you're not even aware of it. It's going to be very difficult for someone to break into your van and you not be aware of it. Anyway, that said, let's talk about some things you can do to keep yourself safer in a van and the pros and cons of those things. The most effective security device you can have in a van is... A dog. Yep. And it's true at home too. A dog is such a deterrent. Not only are people afraid of dogs biting them, which they should be, they're also afraid of the noise dogs make and just having to deal with a dog. If you want to rob someone's van, you don't want to deal with a dog. You just want to steal stuff and go as quickly and quietly as you can. Also, you don't want to deal with a person. Truth is, thieves are not going to want to break in there if they know you're in the van. There's one exception to that, and I've seen this happen to a few folks, sadly, while they were traveling. They have a small van, and they have to take cargo from the back and put it in the front seats so that they can sleep in the back. There have been folks who've had the smash and grab problem where people will just smash the front windows, grab whatever's in the front seat, and then run. Yeah, they'll do that even if you're in the van because they know there's no way you're going to chase them. But even then, a dog may have helped. So if you want to travel with a dog, and I was listening to a Solo Road podcast last week where they basically said, how could you travel without a dog? Yeah, dog is going to keep you safe. Or two, or three, or there was somebody who even was traveling with seven, I think. Cats, not so much. One of the other things that's talked about a lot is sprays. Pepper spray and bear spray. Pepper spray is fairly inexpensive. Bear spray can be a bit more. And the idea is that you spray hot pepper chemical, which is called capsaicin or capsicum, into people's eyes. And it burns so much that it incapacitates them. doesn't cause any permanent injury, but it gives them something else to worry about rather than attacking you. They are somewhat effective, but it is possible to overcome the burning sensation to keep attacking. And in some cases, if you kind of just get them a little bit, it'll just enrage them. So there are risks with using this stuff. Not only that, it is illegal to take it into Canada. So if you cross the borders, you can have problems with pepper spray. I believe the law in Canada is that it is illegal to own any pepper spray that is designed to be used on humans, but they do allow bear spray. And who's to say you wouldn't use the bear spray on a person? It may not be legal, but it's also not legal to whack somebody in the head with a log. If they're attacking you, I don't think anyone's going to blame you. If you're in bear country, I highly recommend pepper spray. It is more effective than guns at repelling bears. It is a much better solution. So absolutely get some bear spray if you're going to be traveling in bear country. Bears can rip through the side of your van. Just so you know, I'm not trying to make you feel less safe, but yeah, they are powerful enough to actually rip through the sheet metal of your van if you give them a reason to. Uh, so, so don't. But 
I said the controversial word, and that is guns. I am recording this in the United States. People love guns in the United States more than any other country. You are going to find more guns here and more gun problems here because of that. And I'm not going to discuss the controversy over gun control or the Second Amendment or any of that. I just want to point out some pros and cons of gun ownership. If you have a gun and you point it at somebody, they are very likely to be intimidated. That would be the ultimate solution for having a gun. Someone breaks in the van, you stick a gun in their face, end of confrontation. And that is the appeal. Okay, granted, if they have their own gun, you might be in less favorable situation, especially since you're likely going to be sleeping in the van and they'll have the drop on you, whatever. There's nothing you can do about that anyway. You, you could run into that situation no matter what. It's very unlikely, but you could. So let's say you've decided that you want to have a gun. Here are some of the things you have to worry about. Guns are a prime target for theft. Owning a gun can actually make you more attractive to criminals and they may target you because they know you have a gun. So if you do have a gun, I would recommend you don't let anyone know about it. Then there's the issue of what kind of gun. If you just want to intimidate people, you could probably get away with a realistic looking BB gun. You know, if you've got that pointed in your face, you're not going to ask questions. It's even if it is, even if you know it's a BB gun, it's still pointing at your face. But handguns seem to be a popular thing because they're small and they're easy. You can wear them on your hip if you're walking around in a sketchy area or, you know, you can put them anywhere in your van. You can have it on, you know, in the front, in the back, whatever. But most handguns uh, fire rounds that move fairly quickly and they will go through your van and then end up where? If you fire your weapon, you're always supposed to know where that bullet is going to go. And with a handgun, that's harder. They're difficult to aim. They're difficult to use effectively. And that bullet will go through your van. And then if you say you're in a campground, it's very likely going to end up in someone else's rig. Definitely something to consider. From everything I have read, and I am by no means a gun expert at all, the best defensive weapon that you could have in a home or in a van is a short-barreled 20-gauge shotgun. And that's because of two things. One, it is really hard to miss with this. You generally point it in the direction you want and pull the trigger, and you're going to hit it. But the pellets don't have the penetrating power that a bullet does, and they will stop quicker. So it's much less likely that you would fire it and go through someone else's rig. So very important thing to consider. Um, if you have a gun, think about what happens if you have to use it. The other thing against owning a weapon is that if you travel a lot, you're going to run into all kinds of different laws. Massachusetts has very strict gun laws. Vermont, right across the border, doesn't. Things you can do in Vermont will get you a very long prison sentence in Massachusetts including just having the gun in the vehicle. Uh, you have to study the laws everywhere. There are apps that can help with this, but just be aware of that. You have to know the laws wherever you are. In Canada, you can't take the gun across the border, basically. There may be some exceptions for hunting weapons, but again, all I'm saying is definitely do your research. It's just another hassle. Tasers. Uh, yeah, to me, security is about deterrence rather than actually getting into an altercation. If you're in an altercation with a taser, you need to have distance from somebody. And if they actually get in your van, you have no distance. I'm not sure tasers are a great solution. 
but they're non-lethal and I'm in favor of that. So it's something to consider. But remember that if someone's close to you, a taser is not great. You've got to have a few feet at least in order to use a taser effectively. I know a lot of people have a hatchet by their bed or a, or a baseball bat. In a home, you have enough space to swing, but in your van, you don't really. And also these just aren't that scary. If I see someone coming at me with a baseball bat, I am not as intimidated as some of these other things. It's certainly not as intimidated as with a dog. You know, I'm not going to be thrilled if someone's coming at me with a hatchet, but I am not going to have the same level of, oh my God, that I would. So those things are okay. But just think about the fact that you're going to have to use them. They're not going to be as much of a deterrent. And that brings us to the most important thing, situational awareness and have a plan. Number one rule is always know where your keys are. Always. In the back of my van, I have a hook that's just for my keys. That's it. It's the only thing that ever goes on there. My keys go on that hook as soon as I get in the back of the van. Always. Every time. If someone's messing around outside my van and I don't like it, I'm going to press the panic button on the key fob. And if that doesn't get rid of them, I'm going to get in the front and drive away. And that's the second thing. Always be ready to drive away. Park your van in such a way that you can drive away instantly. And I don't like having permanent partitions between the front of the van and the back. I always want to be able to get to the front of the van from the back so that in an emergency situation, I can drive away. I have never had one of these, but that is my plan. Having a plan will help keep you safe just because you have a plan, but it also helps with that psychological thing where you feel less safe in a van. So situational awareness is super important. The one thing that I look for whenever I park for uh, determining whether it's a safe place to park or not is broken window glass on the ground. If I see broken automotive glass on the ground, I know that someone has been broken into in that spot because nobody ever cleans that up properly. And I generally won't park there. Thieves are lazy opportunists in general. Don't give them any reason to target your van. In the front of my van, this may sound stupid, I don't know, but this is what I do. I have a clipboard on the dashboard. I have a one of those uh, reflective vests hanging from a hook behind the passenger seat. I either have a hard hat or kind of a worker's cap hanging on that. And I leave a little bit of trash up there. An empty coffee cup, a fast food wrapper, something like that. It doesn't look attractive. I don't want it to. I'm not going to leave my camera sitting out. I'm not going to leave my laptop set up in the passenger seat. All people are going to see when they look in there is stuff that they don't want. And I really think that helps a lot with keeping people out of your van. Security, you got to do what makes you feel safe. I get it. Just know what you're doing. Don't think that having a gun instantly makes you safe all the time. It doesn't. It can cause its own problems. And hey, a dog is your best bet. Tech Talk. Hey, let's talk about multi-tools. And no, I don't mean multimeters. Multimeters are for testing electrical connections. Multi-tools are like a whole toolbox in one tool. Now, the, the general truth of things like this is, is that if something does a bunch of different things, it's your one solution for everything, it doesn't do any of them very well. I find that to be the case with Swiss Army Knives. I don't like Swiss Army Knives because, yeah, they've got all these different tools, but they're all horrible. You don't want to use them. You will use them in an emergency, but for working on a van where you're going to be using the thing all the time, a Swiss Army Knife is not your solution. 
Your solution, if you want a multi-tool, is something like a Leatherman or a Gerber. These are rugged, heavy-duty, and you can actually use the tools. No, they're not as good as a dedicated tool. That goes without saying, but they are good enough to use. I personally carry a Leatherman Wingman. It is my everyday carry. I go with everywhere I can go other than on airplanes. I carry it with me. It has a little clip, and it clips inside my front right pocket. If you ever see me and you see that clip, that's what it is. It's a Leatherman Wingman. It has on it a knife that has a serrated part and a, and a regular part. It's very durable, easy to sharpen. It also has scissors, which I use all the time. These are very heavy-duty scissors for a multi-tool. I can cut all kinds of things with them. And believe it or not, I find that the scissors are one of the most useful tools on there. Definitely consider getting scissors. It also has a Phillips head screwdriver and a flathead screwdriver, of course. It has a file, which I've used fairly often, and the pliers, which are huge. They're needle-nose pliers in the front. Then they have a grippy area in the middle for grabbing nuts. And then there is what's called a hard wire cutter after that that is strong enough to cut through clothes hangers. It is not a wimpy tool. So that's just one of 800 million different kinds of Leatherman. And then you've got Gerber and other brands as well. I highly recommend you get a multi-tool and learn how to use all its parts. When you're looking for a multi-tool, you don't want to get a cheap one. $30 is a good price range if you want a, a cheaper one, but you can go well over 100 if you want one of the bigger ones. Bigger is stronger, less convenient, and make sure you can take it apart. Leatherman, you can use um, an Allen wrench to take it, the whole thing apart and clean it and put it back together. Some of the cheaper ones are riveted. The riveted ones are garbage. Do not waste $15 on a multi-tool. Invest $30 in a good one. Also, if you can, I highly recommend you try it out before you get it. The two problems I find with multi-tools are that the tools are too hard to open, which is usually something that fixes itself with use, and that the handles are just too darn uncomfortable to use. So when they're in pliers mode, it hurts to actually squeeze the pliers together. You don't want that. I used my multi-tool throughout my van build, like all the time. It was what I reached for, and I think you might too once you get used to it. Great gift idea. It's a stocking stuffer. I know we're nowhere near Christmas, but hey, if you know someone in a van and you're not sure what to get them and you want to buy them something, a multi-tool will definitely be appreciated. Tales from the road. Yeah, sometimes I'm not the smartest person in the world. I had arranged to explore Death Valley with somebody, and I rented a 4x4. It was a Jeep Navigator. This is a, it's like the, the Cherokee on steroids. Big four-wheel drive, full-time four-wheel drive thing. Kind of like a Land Rover, but a Jeep. And we were going to go out and explore Death Valley, and then the person missed their flight and decided they weren't coming, and I was like, well, damn. What am I going to do? I was already in Vegas, which is the gateway to Death Valley, and uh, I decided, screw it, I'm going out by myself. This was more than 10 years ago, and GPSs weren't quite so sophisticated, but I was like, look, I've always wanted to go to this place called Racetrack Playa. Uh, we'll talk about that later at the end, but uh, it's a place I've always wanted to visit. So I looked at the GPS, and I told it to go, and we went. And I'm driving and driving and driving, and you know, you know, the GPS has named roads on it. You take this road to that road to that road. What's the big deal? And so, predictably, the pavement ends, and I'm on a dirt road. I'm like, okay, that's expected. And then it says, hmm, four-wheel drive, high clearance only. And I'm like, well, okay, 
It may be a rental, but I'm in a four-wheel drive and it has fairly high clearance. I've got no worries. Again, I'm all by myself. No cell phone signal, but I do have a GPS. And fine. I, I look at the map on the GPS and I see that I'm going fairly in a straight line to my destination. So this must be the best way to go. There's funny words on there. One of the words is Ubahibi. That is U-B-E-H-E-B-E, Ubahibi. I come to find out that Ubahibi is the name of a volcano or a crater. And the road I'm taking is going over the top of that volcano. In for a dime, in for a dollar, I keep driving. I end up on what is called the Lippincott Road. And that is from the old Lippincott mine that's been closed for decades. And the road, well, road. What is a road? That's an interesting thing to explore. What is a road? Well, in this case, a road is something that people made so that donkeys and carts could get over it. And donkeys and carts are a little bit different than my Jeep. It was basically made out of boulders the size of basketballs with no fill in between. And they're at different heights. So imagine driving uphill at maybe an 8% grade on bowling balls. Yes, bowling balls are better analogy than basketballs because these things are not giving. Oh, did I mention there's a cliff on the other side? So basically on one side, on the left side in this case, there was a sheer wall. And on the right side, there was a cliff. And there was exactly enough space for the Jeep. If I had encountered somebody else, there was no way they could get past me. And I don't know what I would have done. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I am doing maybe five miles an hour on the best parts and much slower than that on the worst parts. I've got the differential locked. I am just totally rock climbing up this hill, just living in terror that it's going to get worse and I'm going to have to back down through all this. It takes me a good 90 minutes to get up there. I used half a tank of gas, like 10 gallons of gas doing this because I was doing extremely high revolutions of the engine and not moving very far. And I get to the top. Holy cow, I made it. And what do I see? First, I see this big crater with this amazing wind coming up that you can actually lean over the edge and the wind will hold you up. It's, it's, it's an amazing sight. But then I also see a couple of Subarus. It took everything I had to get up that road. And I've actually been to off-road driving school. I mean, it was not a, not a huge deal, but I did. I have actually had some training in, in how to drive off-road. I know why you use two feet. I know what to do with your mirrors, etc. And these Subarus, stock Subarus, had somehow gotten up there. I was like, what? <laughs> And then I realized that I had gone the wrong way. There was actually a nice, even, clean, well-improved dirt road that went down the other side of the mountain, and that's how the Subarus got up there. But this isn't the kind of thing a GPS tells you, at least not back then. It was just a road. I didn't know it was, like, not a road. <laughs> Lessons to be learned from this. It is very, very stupid to go off-roading without cell phone service in a place called, hint, hint, Death Valley by yourself. Don't go by yourself. It just isn't safe. Don't just trust your GPS. I tend to still trust my GPS way, way too much. But really, pull out a paper map and look at your route. Know your route. Have alternate routes available. 
Ideally, you'll have another vehicle with you and do what I did, which was bring a lot of water. I brought um, a three-gallon bottle of water with me for that trip, which for a day trip is not too bad. If I had gotten stuck, I would have had water, and that's the number one thing. So, um, yeah, and the other part of this is, boy, I really wish Subaru made a van that was sold in the U.S., Anyway, if you'd like to have that same adventure and you have a four-wheel drive van with really high clearance and you know how to drive it, and no, don't do this in a van, get a Jeep or something else, please. Uh, Google Lippincott Road in uh, Death Valley, and uh, it is it is quite quite the place to go. Okay, let's do a product review of the SureFlow 770 electric faucet. White color doesn't really matter. comes in gray and white. This is the type of faucet that you would find in a Westphalia style of camper. It is designed to do only one temperature of water, so in my case cold, but it has something unique in it that you won't find in any household faucet, and that is that it has an electric switch built into the valve. So to picture this in your mind, imagine a small faucet like the kind you'd maybe find in a bathroom, and there's a knob on one side, and when you turn that knob, you hear a click, and that click is actually a switch turning on providing power to the water pump. And then the valve works as normal. You can open it and close it and adjust the water level. And then when you shut it off, it turns off the pump. Now this is for the types of systems where you have a submersed pump, not a pressurized pump, a, an inexpensive submersed pump, say in a jerry can, which is how I do it. It's an all-in-one solution. You don't have to flip a switch to make your water work. You never have to worry about accidentally leaving the pump on. And the faucet head is super adjustable. You can bend it in any way. You can turn it so that it acts like a water fountain. You can have it go the other way. So it'll actually, in my case, face out the door of the van. And I unscrewed the aerator and added a coupler that lets me use it as a shower. So this is actually my shower as well. I think this is a great solution for folks who aren't gonna do a pressurized water system comes in white and gray and it is exactly what comes with Westphalia's or the same idea. It's called SureFlow, S-H-U-R-F-L-O uh, 770 and it is advertised as an electric faucet. I will have a link in the show notes but I can heartily recommend this solution. Just remember it only does cold water. Okay, a place to visit uh, I got to talk about racetrack playa very quickly. A playa is basically it, it means a beach or a, a flat area. Uh, playa del Carmen, you've heard of it, it. It's just Spanish for kind of a beach flat area. And racetrack playa is in uh, the middle of Death Valley. It's actually in California, and it's this big flat area that kind of looks like a racetrack. In fact, there's a big rock in there called the grandstand. So you kind of feel like you're in the middle of like a. Uh, like a NASCAR racetrack. And it would not be all that exceptional other than the fact that when you look down, you see a strange phenomenon that for many years people thought was supernatural. And that is that the stones, the, there's, there's rocks out there, you know, there's some, they're all different size rocks, but they move. That isn't that you can see them move. You can see that they have moved. They left trails behind them in the mud or in the dirt because there actually isn't mud there most of the time when you're going to be seeing it. And some of these are miles long. 
So imagine this, you're standing out there in this big wide open area and there is a rock the size of, hey, a bowling ball, since we're going with that theme. And there is a trail behind it and it stretches off a mile into the distance. Not only that, it changes direction. Halfway in the middle of that mile, it takes a right turn. And all the rocks have done this and they all have different trails. It's almost as though the rocks can move all by themselves. Now, when I visited this place, I talked with the other people who were there because it's a fairly popular place to visit. And they all said the same thing. This has to be aliens. And I never understood why it has to be aliens. I don't have an answer. It must be aliens. That's the same as saying, I don't have an answer. It must be ghosts. Because in the end, what is the difference between aliens and ghosts? How could you tell that you were experiencing one or the other? You can't because you're making stuff up. No, folks, there are no aliens or ghosts. Although if either of those things existed, I would believe that they could make these lines if they wanted to. I think they probably have better things to do with their time. No, we, we know definitively what causes this phenomenon now. In fact, uh, my friend Brian Dunning, who also has a, a podcast called Skeptoid, a much, much larger and much, much more important podcast than this one, I assure you, has a detailed explanation for how it works. In fact, he was one of the very first people to film the phenomenon. And what happens is that they move while nobody's looking. And that is in the winter because the area is closed in the winter when there is ice. The answer is ice. And I will let you solve the rest of the mystery there. I am telling you about this place to encourage you to go visit. You can get there in a two wheel drive van. You do not need four by four. You will absolutely want to research your route before you go. Some high clearance would be nice. There may be some spots where it'll be a little tricky. Take it slow. Don't take too many chances. But the good news is, is that if you did get in trouble out here, there would be other people around to uh, help you out. And do not go over the Lippincott Road to get here unless you're looking for an adventure. Well, thanks for listening to this episode 10. You can get a hold of us at built2go.com. All the music is by Sir Mouge, a.k.a. Simon Wag. Next time, we're going to talk about stealth. Yes, the truth about stealth vans. And for Tech Talk, we will discuss different options for vents and a tale from the road involving a YMCA, except really not what you expected. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and we will see you next time.